are coming back. Whew. Father, thank you for coming back. Well, you, you didn't leave, actually. Uh, so we're very glad that you're here. And I pray that your presence would actually be evident to us, that we would uh, invite your presence, and that we would help, uh, really help, come aware that we um, are not just inviting you in, but we're invited in. So we are in the returning to you on a pretty regular basis like prodigals. And uh, you're always available, always got your Bosch and Loams looking down the road waiting for us to return. And we thank you for this great privilege and that your love is unending and your patience is perfect and uh, you continue to woo us all the time. Now, we need you here in this hour. We need your presence, but we need your insight. We need your spirit to teach us, to guide us into all truth. We need your, uh, even you just to help us be open to listening and hearing something fresh or even to be reminded of something we need re remembering. But uh, please give us the great grace of realizing that there could be something new you want to say to us. And... Uh, and then help us, of course, to realize that everything you say to us is very good news. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, just a quick uh, sort of let's get up to speed to where we are. Um, I, we started kind of, at least uh, in our minds, with uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, and Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, uh, which were uh, the first sentence out of the mouth of John the Baptist in public ministry and the first sentence that Matthew records of Jesus in his public ministry. And we noted something very fascinating, and that is that they were exactly the same sentence. So maybe that's an important sentence. It is a seminal sentence, really. And it is this, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, here's my translation of that rethink your thinking because the universe is not a machine but a kingdom uh, God's kingdom rooted in the uh, eternal love and fellowship of the Trinity and you can be part of it now Dallas Willard sort of sometimes says if you want to go to heaven go now the kingdom of heaven is available now it doesn't mean there isn't a future, you know, glorious spot for all of us. That's not the point. But the kingdom of heaven is accessible now. The Holy Spirit is here now. The Son is here now. The Father is here now. Jesus says, we will come to you. And we'll never leave you or forsake you till the end of the age. We are present. They're in our midst. Uh, we just have to be, of course, uh, sort of susceptible. <laughs> we have to be ready to receive. Uh, what they have for us. And of course there's a greater fulfillment of that and we understand that. But the kingdom then is available. Now a kingdom again, just a definition for a kingdom, is a realm where things happen because someone has the say over them. That's just what a kingdom is. We're very familiar with this. We don't even think about it. But we each have kingdoms. We each have things over which we hold sway. 
and hopefully we rule, rule our kingdoms uh, in love and, and not selfishness. So hopefully uh, the things over which we have our say, including the, the motion of our body, just think about your own body and what a kingdom it is. Mo uh, so much of your body you have control over. A lot of it you don't, but so much of it you do. You can uh, decide what a hand does. You can decide where your feet go. You know, all that, be careful little hands what you do. Be careful little feet where you go. You know, for the Father up above is looking down in love. All of that is really true. We, we control so much, and this is critical to the nature of reality. We also influence each other. Right now, you're in my kingdom, but I'm also in yours, you see, because just your expressions and all of that sort of thing actually influencing me. And what I'm saying hopefully has some impact on you. It's the nature of being a human being to be in control under God in his universe. This was, our, this was the Adamic covenant or the cultural mandate or whatever you want to call it. But it, this is what God said intended from the beginning to Adam and Eve. Now you guys have charge of this planet. And of course we know that Cain did a horrible job managing his part of it. Yes, Cain, you are your brother's keeper. And uh, so we want to make sure that we're not on that side uh, of the way things work, but we're following the second Adam instead in the way he manages his kingdom and then operating with him in his kingdom. So kingdoms are essential to the awareness of what Jesus is trying to say in this message of the kingdom, this core curriculum of the kingdom that we see in these chapters, Matthews 5, 6, and 7. It's accessible, and what a privilege it is. And Jesus came, in fact, to all the broken people of his day with a, a message they had never dreamed of really before. You can get in the kingdom, the likes of Zacchaeus, the likes of the woman at the well, the likes of Mary Magdalene, who was, you know, and all of those uh, there's Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and, and even these crude, uh, crass uh, sons of thunder, you know, James and John, fishermen, and, and Peter and Andrew. We often think of John as this little, you know, effeminate, you know, person. <laughs> Shoot, he wanted to call down fire from heaven and devour people. His nickname was, his nickname was Son of Thunder. He was, but Jesus changed him. He apprenticed with Jesus, and he was definitely changed. And we might or might not talk about that later, but Jesus is trying to, he's recruiting people to, to be under him and his kingdom, to regain, if you will, the control of the earth. And I'm not talking about that in some sort of political way at all, but gee, that's not the way the kingdom works. But the kingdom is a sort of an under-the-surface power where Jesus is involved, and he can use us to the extent we become like him and thereby trustworthy in his kingdom. So the parable of the vineyards and the parable of the, uh, the talents and those kind of things where Jesus is talking about, I'm trying to get you to be trustworthy. And so that we, I mentioned, uh, which would be a surprise to some of you, I'm sure, that uh, I, I agree uh, with those who say that what Jesus is trying to do is uh, develop us into the kind of persons that he could trust to give us anything we ask. He would not be able to trust me yet to give me everything I ask. 
I am quite sure if I had that kind of authority, I'd quickly misuse it. But that's what he wants. So uh, yesterday I came out of the closet. <laughs> Didn't intend to do that, but it seemed like the right thing to do given the illustration that I was trying to make. And so I'll mention another one. When Jesus says, when you ask something in my name, he's talking in my world. He's talking about the world of agency or fiduciary duty. He's talking about the authority that a corporate officer or a trustee or something like that has over the assets of someone else or some entity and they, all they have to do is sign their name on a check and they could empty the company bank account. When they do that for non-company reasons, we call that embezzlement. You want to make sure there's someone you can trust with that kind of power, with that kind of authority. If you need a trustee for a trust or a power of attorney, an agent under a power of attorney or something, you really want to make sure that that's a person you can trust. If you're naming someone a corporate officer and giving them signatory authority on a check, and this is what Jesus is doing. He's trying to develop us into the kind of person that he can hand more and more things to in his kingdom and it's always about the kind of person we are. It's never about sort of the kind of magic we have. We want to be very careful about this. That doesn't mean that Jesus will not give us things that are way inexplicable with, uh, without him. In fact, everything is inexplicable without him if we only realized it. We've never had a synapse that he wasn't involved in. We've never had a breath that he didn't give us or... You know, he makes the rain fall on both the just and the unjust. We must realize that everything is really grace, even when we think it's not. I mean, which of us actually made our own heartbeat? So we have to understand that, but there will be times when, when Jesus just graces us with things that we just can't even understand hardly, and that's all great. But what he's really trying to do is develop us into the kind of persons he is so that he can just give us more and more authority. And this is clearly what he's saying all the time. And, and by the way, when people take him seriously at that task like his initial disciples did, it turns the world right side up. And it did turn you know, so much of the world right side up. And that's what he's still waiting for. So we have a tremendous mission, not only a privilege to be in this kingdom, but a, but a tremendous mission. Uh, as, as his agents, as his representatives, as the little Christ, as imitators of God then, as dearly loved children. Uh, this is a family business, and we're learning the trade from Dad. And we really need to learn him and his language and his methods. This is really so essential. There's nothing uh, completely weird or Ouija board about this stuff, you know, or Da Vinci Code either, for that matter. It's really real solid stuff. I, I, I'm... Uh, my dad was a carpenter, uh, me growing up, and I worked with him actually full-time uh, for 10 years, 
and I had worked with him, you know, ever since I was old enough to do a little bit before that. And I like to say that I, with my dad, he and I had a language, you know, that I understood his language, and he taught me a lot of things. I, I, I say I know the difference between a hair and a fuzz. <laughs> you know, if he t says to take a hair off of something, then I know what that is. If he says just take a fuzz, I know that's not quite a hair. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, all of you, don't you? This is the sort of thing we need with Jesus, where we really get to know him because we've learned beside him how to live our lives just as he would. So if someone said, for example, that I, uh, if I did some project and someone would say to me, you did that just like George would do it, I'd say, they recognize your work, John, and you know, just like, this is the idea we are supposed to be, as Paul said in Ephesians 1, be imitators of God then as dearly loved children. And what's that imitation look like? Live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. That is our charge. That's it. You could summarize it all right there. What's my task? To be an imitator of my dad, my Abba, as a dearly loved child, receiving his love and then being a conduit of that love out to others just like Jesus was. And that's it. Okay, so uh, we're training the heart. I, I said not just trying. This is a great distinction. John Ortberg makes it just like that. I like the way he says it. And he often uses the illustration of a marathon. Now, when I look around this room, I'm not picking on anybody uh, at all. And I suspect there's just maybe uh, two or three in here that could run a marathon uh, later today if, if, if I had a cashier's check signed in blank here for a million dollars. But I would still say that, you know, uh, at least 90% of us couldn't. We couldn't do it, even doesn't matter what. I mean run every step of it. I don't mean walking at all, I just mean running every step. I'm not telling you have to do it and like under four hours or anything. I just mean to run every step. I know I couldn't do it. You, it wouldn't matter if you put another zero in there. It was $10 million. I would not be able to do it. But I will tell you something. That if you had a, if I knew that you were good, good for it and your promise was good and you said, I'll give you a million dollars if by this time next year you can run every step a marathon I would probably do it. I would surely try. I would take some cortisone shots and <laughs> and a lot more than that, right? I could train for that though, and given a year, I could do it. Now, this is what we're talking about here. This is this. Eugene Peterson calls it, it very ironic. He borrowed this line from Frederick Nietzsche, which is just completely bizarre to me. But he, it, it, he wrote a little book called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. This is what Jesus, what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus. A long obedience in the same direction. Training. And frankly, we aren't that good at training each other even, let alone training ourselves. 
But we can be, and we can be better, and I'm quite sure Jesus will be happy to teach us if we'll actually give it some effort. But you can't do it by just trying. You have to do it by training. And the question then is, you know, whether it's worth it. Do we envision its value? Do we think that walking in tandem with Jesus, remember again that easy yoke illustration? Remember what Jesus says, if you're just completely overwhelmed with trying to live life on your own, come unto me, take my yoke upon you, and learn of me. Yeah, learn of me. Train with me. That's what a disciple is. It's a trainee. It's an apprentice. A person who's actually learning to, you know, hammer with the right hand and the left hand and run a miter box before they had motors, you know, and put mortar on uh, cement blocks without spilling two-thirds of it on the ground and keep it on the block until it's actually in place in the line without spilling the other third on the ground and so on and so forth. You know, just the things that are involved in whatever skill or trade you know. We have to learn them. Okay, so that's all just kind of helping us get where we are, and I think I might have another thing. Oh, yeah, so this is what, how you get the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus says, I have in mind for you people to be the hope of the world, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. That's you, common people. That's what I have in mind for you. It's your job. It's what I intended in the beginning when I created you, and it's, I haven't changed my mind about that. I've had to come now in order to redeem you from your rebellion against me, reconcile you to myself, and to teach you how to do this. But if you follow me, you'll learn how to do it. You'll be successful at it. And by the way, you'll find that life goes much, much better. It's the way of the transgressor that's hard. So it is an easy yoke. But it's going to be a righteousness that exceeds the externals. The, just the meticulous keeping of something. And it's going to be a, have to have impact on the heart. Now, by the way externals can be aimed at the inside and be a helpful training tool. But they won't do, they won't be helpful if they're not aimed at the inside. Tom, for example, has, has talked, and I just love the fact that he can just quote, you know, reams of scripture all at one time and all of that, and it's very helpful and all good, and, and he's mentioned how good it is, and I, I believe that. I, you know, one of my favorite persons and mentors is Dallas Willard, and he said he would never actually pastor a church uh, where there wasn't a Bible memorization program. But you see, a Bible memorization isn't going to do it. The very people whom Jesus said your righteousness is going to have to exceed, most of them had the whole Pentateuch memorized. In fact, he would say to them, you search the scriptures night and day, but you don't get it. See, they're not, it, they're not aimed at changing you. They're not aimed at you becoming the kind of person I designed you to be. And so we have to be very careful about you know, what we do. Uh, I, uh, when I was in uh, college, I suppose, once in a while I helped out with a, a high school quiz team that our church had. And and it was great to see these kids just memorizing these blocks of Scripture and then being able to answer every trivial question there was about it. But my, my observation years later is, 
don't see that it made any significant difference. Yeah, because it, 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 it alone is not enough. It needs to be intended for the right purpose. We have to be malleable. We have to be uh, moldable in, in Christ. Okay, so we've got to get around to our subject. Uh, we talked about this. But we, we do join Christ's energy when we join the yoke with him. Uh, but again, it's not, we join his yoke, not vice versa. So often we say, hey, Jesus, get on my train and put a lot of coal in the locomotive, will you? And he says, no, you'll have to get off and get on my train. We, we just, he's not getting in our yoke to pull our yoke. We're getting in his yoke to walk with him, to learn from him how to live life. And that really is a critical distinction. Well, my qu next question then, just as a uh, now to introduce where we're going today. Does anybody like to get your own way? <laughs> Does anybody not like it, at least like it? Well, we do like it. We like it so much that God would say to Isaiah, it's true of everybody, all, my, all, we, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. In order to get our own way, by the way, it's amazing sometimes what we'll do. And this is kingdom language again, of course. And this is why we're constantly supposed to be saying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, namely right here in my heart, and then elsewhere also as it is in heaven or where you have sway over things, Jesus. Remember, the kingdom of heaven is not a long ways off, either geographically or chronologically. It's here and now. Lasts forever, and it's extensive, it's, it's broader and bigger than the universe, but it's present as well. So that's the question. And so the, the follow-up question on, the, on that is, what will we say in order to get our own way? Because that's what Jesus is talking about when he gets to this next section. Um, where and Let's see if I could, if you find it, what verses it start on. It, you might have a caption, oaths, in your scripture. It's about oaths, but it's not about oaths. It's amazing what we do with the scripture. So there are some people who, for example, will not, you know, put their hand on a Bible and swear to tell the truth in a courtroom because Jesus said don't take any oaths. Well, that's the problem with understanding what Jesus is saying as some sort of like Da Vinci Code Christianity. It's not it at all. These people didn't wonder what it was. They didn't later say, oh my goodness, I can't believe how this guy gets the nature of reality. He understands it like nobody else because he told them not to take an oath. Well, because, you see, today we might say, for example, do away with the song and dance. You see, in Jesus' day, particularly the people in religious authority, but really about anybody, as soon as they swore by something, the greater thing they swore by, the more leverage it had over the other person to whom they're swearing. And so you almost dare not question the veracity of someone who says, uh, hope to, you know, what's the hope to die, stick a needle in your eye? What is that thing? I don't know. You know what I'm saying? No, it's the, it's the person who said that. We still have little remnants of this 2,000 years later. So we might say, I swear! 
or I swear to God, or whatever. Well, what are we trying to do? We're trying to manipulate with our words someone into doing what we want done by somehow leveraging our words. We, it's, uh, I hope I'm not offending anybody deeply here. I really do. But it's almost all marketing. Very little marketing is just yes or no. Let me tell you the facts and only the facts. Almost all marketing is what Jesus is talking about here. Trying to leverage people to do what you want them to do by what you say. Not for their good, but for yours. So it would, it would raise the question, do we ever try and convince anybody of anything? Well, of course, but that which is good for them not what's good for us. Now, if you say, no, wait a minute, I could never make a living. I'm a commissioned salesman. Well, <laughs> I was once, actually, for a while. Um, and by the way, I was taught to do whatever it took to manipulate with words. Tell people that you referred to them by somebody you weren't really referred to them by, and just roll with the punches, they used to say. But anyway, um, I'm really more concerned with me now and you now in the way that I will try to manipulate someone with my words to get them to do what I really want and best it's best if I can get them to think it's what they want. Right? I don't want it be, I don't want it to be obvious that it's what I want. I want them to think it's what they want. And then shoo, it's great. I look like a hero and get what I want. Nobody else has this problem? <laughs> you see, Jesus knows that these are the things in us that, we, that keep us from becoming the kind of person he is and accordingly having the kind of liberty that he has, the truth that sets us free. So we want to move along on this. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, James says, but dece he deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And uh, for whoever desires to love life, Peter says, Peter is one of Jesus' apprentices, of course, and James is Jesus' little brother, and they've learned this lesson from Jesus. And Peter says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Wouldn't that be something? L look what he says. Love life and see good days. Isn't it interesting? Because usually when, we're, um, keep, when, when we have our evil tongue going and our, our lips speaking deceit, it's because we think that's what we're doing for ourselves. Helping out our life and giving ourselves good days. We think we're getting some advantage that's actually going to be good for us. <coughs> because we're flying upside down. We're thinking the old patterns of thought, the old chaff path from Psalm 1, remember, and uh, not being uh, like a tree planted by rivers of water. We are actually uh, ignoring the nature of reality as it truly is, and we're living as if 
the universe is a machine and I am left to my own resources here to survive in this place. Whereas Jesus says, no, 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 no. The universe is a kingdom. I've got everything. You become the kind of person I am and you'll find out how much of it's accessible to you. Now, it's not by any means only financial resources that we're after when we're manipulating people with our words. It's all sorts of things. It's what we might like to do this evening or whatever. We just want to get our way. And Jesus says, you'll just find yourself liberated when you don't want to get your own way anymore. And you don't use uh, your lips for that purpose. That's what that's about. I say we have ways of manipulating others with our words, usually to get our way. Sometimes those are words that demonstrate anger or contempt, as we've just talked about, just come out of that. Sometimes they involve words of judgment. We'll talk about that later because Jesus does. Sometimes they are slick and slippery and rich and gooey. Sometimes seductive. Sometimes they're on the, the song and dance that I mentioned by which some make their living, and most of us resort to at times. It's absolutely amazing what salespersons we can all be if we really have an incentive to be to try and get our way. But if we treasure people like Father treasures them, we will never think of trying to sell them, in quotes, uh, on something that we don't believe they should really buy. And again, I'm in quotes because I'm not talking just about trying to make a living by exchanging goods for money. I'm talking about the fact that on a daily basis, we find ourselves trying to convince something, somebody of something that they really would rather not do or whatever for our own benefit. Most often, of course, this is right in our families. Most often it's husband, wife, children, and parents. It's so easy to spot it when it's children doing this to parents. We see it all the time, everywhere. I mean, which of us really enjoys going to the grocery store and having some kid uh, throwing a temper tantrum, you know, to try and get what they're after. But it can work just the other way around, too. Now, here's the thing, and I don't know for sure if I have it up here or not, but I want to just remind us that one of the most valuable things about any human being in terms of being a human is our power of choice. our power of choice. And when people try to manipulate us into doing something that we wouldn't choose if we just knew the facts, it's an encroachment into our kingdom that they don't have a right to. And we notice it. This is one of the reasons that imprisonment is so hard on people, because they've lost their freedom of choice as to where to go. And the very worst of all is brainwashing, where we even lose our choice of what thoughts we're going to think. But all of this that Jesus is talking about is just the tip of the iceberg in the way we manipulate people with words. He only has so much time here, and undoubtedly Matthew has condensed some of this thing, but you can see that what he's touching on here about manipulating people with words is a a very serious uh, human situation. So speaking the truth in love, uh, Paul says in Ephesians, this is the opposite of that. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. See, 
The difference is uh, I'm now just speaking the truth in love. I'm speaking the truth to you, and I'm not even speaking the truth to you to try and get my own way. I'm speaking it in love. I'm speaking the truth to you not to get my way, but so that you'll flourish as a human being. I'm speaking the truth to you so that you'll have a, a really informed choice about this or that or the other thing, and you'll be able to exercise your freedom just fine. And if I don't think you're going to buy it and I'm making my living that way, uh, I, just gonna, I guess I'm just going to have to trust my dad instead of my own resources. You see, the flesh counts for nothing, as Jesus would say, but the spirit actually counts for everything. So why wouldn't I trust why wouldn't I rather have my dad take care of me than my own resources? Doesn't mean I don't work, obviously, nothing like that. But if I am manipulating people in order to make sure I have a sale so I can put food on the table, I've forgotten whose food it is and where it comes from. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For, remember, again, neighbor, person who's near you, for we are members one of another. He's not just talking about the church here, by the way. He does talk about that in Ephesians. We are all members one of another. We are all, as we've been reminded already this week, uh, in the evenings, we are uh, all from the same race. We are all children of Abraham, I mean of uh, Adam, and many of us children of Abraham, and guess what? Our dad loves our brothers and sisters. And we think we're just hurting them or using them or getting something from them. And he's He's the one we're hurting, you see. He, he and, and, and ourselves, we're hurting ourselves also. But he says, so n let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now that would be a great accomplishment if we could get through a day and say, that's what I've been doing today. We'll have to train for this. We'll have to train for it. I need to train for it. I am very good at whining. And I'm very good at whining in such a way that someone else might just feel a little bit guilty for how miserable I have life. <laughs> I don't, I'm, I'm the only one in here like that, so I'm just confessing it. You know. <laughs> just confessing it to you. And of course, on any sort of scale whatsoever, my life is about as privileged as it can be. Every single person sitting in this room, for example, lives in the top 99.5% of socioeconomically of all the people in all the world in all of time, or something like that. The percentage is high enough. And what I ought to be doing then with my time, my energies, my resources, being a fountain of blessing to you and you to me, and that's the way it's supposed to work, including now with this just way we use our tongues.
So a critical aspect of human personality is the need to make our own decisions under God. Now, I already mentioned that a little bit, but it's there now in the outline. To really refrain from manipulating others, uh, we must trust God. We will not be able to get over trying to get other people to do what we want if we don't trust God to give us what we need. This is what it means to walk in the flesh. It just means to walk according to our own resources. That's what it means, to walk in the flesh. Just to walk according to the resources that I think I have. I don't even have any resources outside of God, but at least I think I do, and I'm making choices without regard to the involvement of God in the situation, without having confidence that he is a good dad who will surely take care of me if I will just let him. And remember now, this. I just want to make the connection with you so you see the connection, because when you get to the end of the next chapter, which we will within, you know, before we're done here, Lord willing, not today, but before we're done here, Lord willing, we'll get to that text we all know. So seek, do not worry about what you're going to eat, don't worry about what you're going to drink or uh, wear and so on and so forth, but seek first God's kingdom, what he's doing right here, right now around you, and it's righteousness, you see, that, uh, that uh, mathetes, no, that dike or however you pronounce that word, um, that righteousness of the kingdom, the right way to live, the right path, the right, the apprenticing with Jesus to learn how to live life right. That's what he's saying. And then he says, I'll just take care of everything else. Now, that's either true or it's false. If it's true, then we can relax and get on with apprenticing with Jesus which doesn't mean quitting our jobs or anything like that. You know, we have to be so careful. I mean, it could occasionally, but we have to be so careful that we don't sort of take this great advice of Jesus and put it over in some category that he's not talking about. He's talking about living my life right now in my present circumstance like he would live it if he were living my life. That's the only place he can bless me. It's where I am. He can't bless me somewhere else now. I'm right here in this present circumstance, you see. Okay, so let's move along. That is, we must truly bet on God and his kingdom, as we said. So that's that we, we're doing two. Don't, you know, don't get too excited here. We're going to move on now to this other subject of releasing revenge. So if you look at chapter 5, verses 38 uh, to 48 here a second, and I'll see if I can find it uh, myself. And... Uh, Matthew 5, uh, 28, is it 38 to 48, is that what I said? Yes. Verse 38, we're gonna, I'm going to read the text right on through verse 48. Jesus is speaking now. He either knows what he's speaking about or not. And he's not speaking riddles. The common people who heard him got it, and we need to get it too. He says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you uh, and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. 
But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you can be chips off the old block. So that you're an imitator of God as a dearly loved child, you see. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, big deal. Uh, that isn't really going to do you much good, is what he's saying. What ro- reward do you have? We can't think about this as, you know, someone giving us a little trophy to put on our shelf. The reward is the c- person you become, which is, by the way, way better than a trophy on the shelf, no matter how big a trophy it is, because that's where life comes from. Life never came from a trophy on a shelf. Life comes from the person you become. That's what God gets out of you, and that's what you get out of you. And it's better than anything else. But, okay, so we, let's go along here. Uh, those who lo- what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Uh, do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I love a line, I think, uh, something like this, C.S. Lewis says about that. Uh, God was not speaking, Jesus was not speaking idealistic gas when he said this line. It's exactly what he intends for us to be. Now, perfect here isn't something that never makes a mistake. It is being full-grown or fully complete or reaching the potential God has in mind for us, which is his image, which is his character, which is his nature. Training for this, of course, and we just look at that and say, oh, forget it, it's not worth it. Well, we don't understand its value. How many zeros do we have to add to that $1 million to make it worth it, you see, um, in the marathon example? How many? Paul would say, you know, those athletes who do that for lots of money, they just do it for a prize that's going to just perish. We do it. We do our training. That's what he's talking about, training. Every athlete, he says, that goes into Olympic competition goes into strict training. That's what he says. They do it for a crown that perishes. We do it for a crown that cannot perish. No one can take from you the character of Jesus that you gain. It lasts forever. And this is what we're after. This is the, the prize we're looking for. Okay, so let's move along on this, uh, on this one. The eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth command was given to limit revenge, as been true in all ages. Uh, revenge escalates. Uh, the Hatfields and the McCoys really happened. And they're still happening. You know how it goes. And someone does something to you, you want to retaliate in kind and just a little bit more to emphasize the point. And then it comes back around to you again just a little bit more. And all that wheel has to do is turn a few times and it gets... uh, to where lifelong injuries are made. And somebody has to stop that cycle. And Jesus says, 
it can be you. It can be you. Eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, of course, that whole rule was given in order to limit that, in order to limit the revenge. If you go back and look in the scriptures where it actually occurred in the first place, the problem was people weren't just taking an eye, they were taking both eyes. Or they weren't taking a finger, they were taking two fingers, you know, whatever. They were, they were getting more. And so Moses says, no, 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 equal. E you know, no, no, you can't take revenge that's greater than the wrong. Jesus says, how about if you become the kind of a person who has no interest in revenge? How would that be? That's what he's talking about. Just not having any, any, any interest in it. Well, I'm, I'm very reluctant, Jerry, to let you ask a question or say something because then you know what will happen. We, we will, you know, we can't talk about that presently, okay, because you know what would happen. The thing is, Jesus is not making a new rule that's tougher than Moses' rule. He is trying to develop us in a, a heart within us that would just have no interest in revenge. Just have no interest in it. We have to understand that when Jesus is talking here, he is not giving... By the way, we could so quickly circumvent all of these things if they were just little rules that we had to keep. We'd figure out a new way around it. That's not it. He's trying to develop us into the kind of persons that would have no interest in harming someone just because they've harmed us. That's what it's all about. Well, you know, Cain killed Abel because he was jealous. Saul tried to kill David for the same reason. Uh, Lamech, you know, he's one of my favorite illustrations of this because he says, hey, a guy hit me and I killed him. And I'm bragging about it. If Cain was avenged 70, or Abel avenged 70 times, I'm 77 times or whatever. I can't remember exactly what he said. But, of course, you remember the story of Jacob's sons killing a whole village of men because they, one of them had uh, taken advantage of Dinah. And uh, it just, it goes on and on. Lots of illustrations in the scripture. But how many families and businesses and churches and institutions have shattered for just the same reason? The need to get even and a little bit more. Where's our heart? Is our heart a heart of blessing those who curse us? or returning at least an eye for an eye and maybe a little more. Or maybe a little less because then we'll feel righteous. Where's our heart? Do we want life? Do we want to flourish? If we just want to keep on managing our lives on our own, according to the flesh, as Jesus and Paul would say, then we'll just keep on making sure we watch out for ourselves. But if we have a Father in heaven who is present, with all the resources he has, why in the world would I not want to turn this over to him? You know, that's what was told, said about Jesus. He entrusted himself to the one who judges uprightly. He just turned it over to his dad. 
That's what Paul says, too. He says, remember, vengeance is mine. He says, Paul says, don't return any evil for evil. Give that to God. Let him do it. Who's better able to do it? Vengeance is mine. He says, turn it over to, to God. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. I should have worn a T-shirt today. I didn't bring it with me. I have a T-shirt that uh, one of my sisters bought for me, and this is what it says. Uh, back off. I have a sister, and I'm not afraid to use her. <laughs> well, guess what? It's almost laughable. Really? We have a father who said, let me handle this. We were not designed. We were never intended to be able to bear the burden of getting evil and making everything right in terms of justice with people who abuse us. We were never designed for that. It's just too much of a load. It sucks the life right out from mama, other out from under us. And so we just give it over to the Father and release it and let it go and go on with whatever he has us doing in his kingdom. Now, generally speaking, think how much better life would be if that's what we actually did. We'll probably have to train for it. We'll have to get some accountability with somebody. We'll have to have talk to somebody about it. We'll have to be able to go to somebody who really loves us and is for us, not just patting us on the back and telling us, oh, it's okay, do whatever you want. No, someone who is for our health, our spiritual health, and will say to us, what did you do? And we, we're going to have to come up with some ideas about how I'll deal with this then. If I can't deal with it way the way that I used to deal with it, how will I deal with it? And we'll have to train for it. And you'll be surprised at how quickly God will come to your aid when you actually decide, I'm going to do the right thing. But we'll have to do some of that. Um, anyway, so someone has to stop the cycle, and we can do it. And J that's what Jesus says, that we can do it. So what if, when we do or say something less than kind towards someone to deserve a slap on the cheek, we refrain from uh, returning evil for evil and simply acknowledge our wrong and offer the other cheek? Now, by the way, if someone tells you that uh, when Jesus says, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek, it also means, you know, if they cut your arm off, let them cut your other arm off. That is not what Jesus said. These people knew it. He's talking about insult. And what happens when you get into one of these cycles. And probably, maybe not, but probably you even deserve it. Slap. You know, most people don't slap you on the cheek if you don't deserve it. Right? Right? I mean, just in the common everyday life. Now, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, but most of the time you said something that was a little, you know, whack. You deserve that. And what do we usually do? We figure out a way to justify our behavior, and then we attack them instead. And Jesus says what we ought to do is just, just think how disarming this would be in that situation. You're right. I really deserve it for you to slap me on the other cheek, too. Think what air that takes out of their sails. Just think about it, really. Imagine that for a minute, what it would be like if that was your normal response to someone who does some wrong to you. Jesus did not say, and we just have to be so careful we don't, un we don't misunderstand this. He didn't say, if they cut one ear off, you know, give them the other one. He didn't say anything like that. He's talking about the normal interpersonal relationships that, that make our heart what our heart ends up being. And they happen probably every day. 
more than we realize because we're just so used to responding. Uh, and he's saying you can respond differently if you want to have freedom, the truth that sets you free, that'll be because you've become like this, settling disputes. So I say, is Jesus naive? Now remember, I came out of the closet yesterday. <laughs> this, is a, this is a world with which I'm very familiar. And I've heard every story there is to hear, practically. And I will also tell you that Jesus was not saying there would never be a time when you didn't defend yourself in a lawsuit or bring one. He did not say that. We have to be so careful not to misunderstand what Jesus is doing. The question is, what would you like to be able to do in this situation? Where is your heart in this situation? There are times when for the benefit of your family or whatever, there's just things you have to do. I understand that. Things sometimes even for the benefit of the other person you have to do. Very few people ever do it for the benefit of the other person, I can tell you that. In fact, I can't really remember ever seeing any in over 30 years of doing this. And I've found very few people who are willing to just say, you know, just take it. Again, we, if we look at this as, well, I sort of call it a Da Vinci Code Christianity, if we look at this as sort of a formula for this is how you do it, you know, you punch all the right buttons in all the right places and out comes what your result you want. That's not what Jesus is never doing that. He's always talking about the development of the character. So the question again is what would you want to do? What's your motive? What would you do if you could do? What, what's really behind this? What's driving it? You just have your ego hurt. You just have your pride hurt. You just can't stand in injustice. Imagine if Jesus couldn't stand in injustice. Really? Whose kids do we want to become? But again, that doesn't mean that everything that anybody ever does to you is just, okay, you know, do it again. What's my heart want toward that person, though? Does my heart want for good to that person, or does my heart want what my heart usually wants? That's the question. What Jesus is trying to do is say, let's rethink our thinking about our normal responses to what people do when they abuse us. It doesn't mean that Jesus is laying down some law that we have to violate even though we're trying to be like him. So, for some of you, perhaps that should be some liberty, should be some, some freedom. For others, you, you need to rethink your thinking on the other side. Uh, and that's clearly what Jesus is saying. An extra mile. This, I love this illustration because, it, again, this, people get this. The people there get it. Okay? Here's what's going on with the extra mile. In the Roman Empire, there were certain Roman officials, like soldiers and others, who had the right to demand any subject or citizen in the Roman Empire to carry a burden of a certain size one mile. It was their civic duty like paying a tax. It was how they got certain things done. And so someone could come along to you and if they were a Roman official, they could say to you, I've got this package, I need it to go over there, and it was your obligation to carry it up to one mile. And Jesus said, why don't you, if you've got the time and opportunity, I mean, I know I'm reading between the lines, but if you have, because otherwise we're just, well, what if, what if, what if? No, none of those. Just generally speaking, why wouldn't your heart be, I'd like to go even further than I'm required to go if I can? 
Now think about what that would do in a workplace. You know workers like that. I hope you are one. And that doesn't mean you abuse your family. I've got to stay at work every night, every late, every night if my boss wants me to, and not even if I never see my kids. You know, no, 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 no. But what would your heart want to do for the good of the person who has authority over you if it could? That's the question. You see, Jesus is brilliant. Could we just lift all of this stuff out of this sort of like little, um, here's a little rule, doesn't make sense to me, but I know I got to do it. That's not, Jesus is never doing that. He's never doing that. But that's exactly where that came from. Going the extra mile literally means doing more than is actually required of me just because I want to be helpful. Now, we all know that if we were that kind of a person, we'd be happier. Right? Right? Honestly, right? If we actually had a heart to help everybody if, that we could help reasonably, then we'd be happier instead of wanting to make sure everybody else is, you know, helping us to the extent we can. Uh, and that's just the kind of person. You know that when you become the kind of person that just wants to be helpful beyond your obligation, that you're happier than the other way. And this is very much like Jesus just saying it really is better to give than to receive. Same kind of thing. Yeah, exactly the same thing. So a good way is to pray for our persecutors, Jesus says. There are people who come along and just abuse you something terrible. What's your response? What's, your, what's happening in your heart toward them? I, I, I'm right now thinking of a, a situation that arose uh, 40 or so years ago in my own life and when I was working with my dad and that sort of thing and there was a person who um, uh, falsely accused my dad of doing something related to the job that I knew not to be true because I knew the facts and even if I didn't know the facts I would have known it wasn't true because I knew my dad's character okay so but in any event I can right now still recall my heart and I had to drive down that guy's street to go home every day. Well, I could have gone out of the way, around the way, but I can tell you that it was a long time before my heart changed, and I kept working. Well, it changed incrementally, and and uh, then it would go back. You know, any anybody ever taken a step forward and a step back and this kind of thing? <laughs> yeah, I can remember driving down that street so many times, and there's a part of me that wants to make sure this gets edited out. Okay. I, I, thankfully, I'm most of the time completely oblivious to the fact that somebody actually is recording these words, and then I would get night sweats over it, you know. But um, <laughs> when I used to drive down that guy's street on a daily basis, I had the battle sometimes of not wanting him to get hurt in the 18-wheeler he drove. Yep, it changed. But it took a long time. But I mean, I had to stick at it. And I did pray for him. It's pretty comical, really, because there came a point where he was going to sell some land to a developer, and he said to the developer, I won't do this unless John represents me. See? So God has a way of doing things. But it, it, I'm not proud of that. 
Imagine what it would be like if we actually used prayer as training. And we don't have to lie to God, you know. You can go to God and say, you know, I don't really feel like praying for this person, but I'm going to do it anyway because you told me to, and it's good advice. And it's, it's not a magic wand. It's not like you put the nickel in and you get the gumball out. That's not what it is. God is not a vending machine, but it retrains our heart. It's like running a wind sprint. 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 That's what it would be for me. If I <laughs> <laughs> running a, a wind sprint or something like that. It's like doing your dribbling drills. It's like, you know. I, I want to give you a distinction that we sometimes don't make, and we'll perhaps talk about this tomorrow, but I want to, because I'm thinking about it, I want to give it right now. It's a distinction between pretending and practicing. C.S. Lewis once said, for example, the best way to, if you don't love someone, the best way to come around to loving them is to act like you do. Now, he didn't mean pretend. He meant do what you would do if you did love them. That's practice. Do what you would do toward them if you did love them. Not pretending that you do when you don't, but just practice. And that's what we need to do in this way. And that's actually a much uh, of what Jesus is saying about praying for our persecutors. It's the way to actually be like Father, to be complete or whole like he is. He treats everyone with grace and kindness. He is benevolent to all, even those who regularly curse him and refuse his grace. Love, by the way, here doesn't mean you, you have ooey-gooey, richy and chewy feelings toward a person. Love means having good will. It is having your will set for their good. Your will is not something that you can just change like that. Your mind is going to have to be involved in it, and your mind has to be trained. So there are going to be exercises you're going to have to go through. And Jesus is saying one of those exercises is pray for the people. Pray for them. Prayer is a great exercise in lots of things. Yesterday we talked about fantasized desire and praying for someone over uh, whom you have for, for whom you might have some fantasized desire is a pretty good way, pretty good discipline of uh, overcoming that. Pray for them. Pray for their good. Pretty soon you'll pretty well realize that their good is not what you have in mind. But it's the same with this. Uh, pray for them. Love equals genuine goodwill. Forgiving and being forgiven. In uh, the next chapter, in sort of the, not really the heart of the chapter, but the heart of the chapter, not in terms of words, but in terms of its content, is the Lord's Prayer, or the Disciples' Prayer. We are not going to cover that, and I'm sorry if that disappoints you. Uh, one reason is because there certainly wouldn't be enough time for that. It is a whole uh, series of its own. In fact, that's what we did two years ago uh, here at Bayshore. Uh, but in any event, you remember, there's only one part of that prayer that Jesus actually re em emphasizes immediately when he's done giving it. And this is the part. He says, you know, forgive us uh, uh, our sins or trespasses or debts or whatever word you want to use. Forgive us our uh, sins as we forgive those as. we Just the same way that we forgive others. That's you know, I would not have said it that way. Jesus did. But he said, no, it really, I'm 
obviously paraphrasing a little bit here, but when he's all done with that, and he says, you remember that part about forgiveness? I, did, I said it the way I mean it. Because if you don't forgive, then neither will your father. That is hard language. That is hard to swallow. But he, here's what's going on. Remember, we have talked about the fact that we have to be able to receive the love of God. We have to actually have a heart posture that can receive it and have it do some good in us. And Jesus is saying uh, unforgiveness towards someone else is plaque that completely plugs that artery. It's a kink in the hose. And you will not be able to receive the forgiveness of God. It's not so much God's attitude towards you. That's, what, that's not the concern. The thing is, the benefits of the forgiveness of God will do no good to me in this, in this tremendous project of me becoming like Jesus unless I'm willing to forgive. When you understand what's going on there, I think it's much easier to see uh, the rest of this. So here's where I want to suggest uh, an MRI, okay? Uh, actually, just not long before I was here uh, two years ago, I had an MRI. On June 4th uh, of that 2014, I leaned over, I was out by the barn, and I leaned over to pick up a, a cardboard box that was empty that I had just dropped, and uh, yeah, it, my uh, lowest, what do you call those things, discs, went like that and, and against my nerve and I inched my way all the way back to the house. Didn't think I was going to get there and my wife wasn't up yet because it was early in the morning and anyway, um, thankfully I'm much improved. But um, one of the things that they scheduled for me right away was an MRI. And I didn't say, oh, you know what, I really don't like those tubes and they make a lot of noise. I said, the sooner the better. Let's find out what's going on because this is broken. Something's wrong. It's not working right. And I hope I find somebody who really knows how to read it and figure out how to fix it. This is so analogous to what we need. David in Psalm 139 says, You search me, O God, and know. And he, that's, very, that's at the beginning. And that very near the end, after he goes through this you know all about me. You know every thought I've ever had before I could form it, form it as a word on my tongue. And you knit me together in my mother's womb. And, and uh, your thoughts toward me are more numerous than the grains of sand on the seashore and very precious and all that. Then he says, search me and know me. Uh, it's a, just a good exercise. Just get alone with God and perhaps lie down and spread yourself out and say, have a good look, Doc. I know there's something wrong, and uh, I need you to help me figure out what that something wrong is. And I know, I mean, I don't ever, I don't hesitate to say to the doctor, have a good look, because I want to get well. In fact, that just reminds me very quickly of one of Jesus' most poignant questions that we so easily skip over. It's in John chapter 5, and he goes to the pool of Bethesda, remember, and he says to the guy that's been lying there for decades, do you want to be well? Father, it's a lot easier for me to say than to really mean, but I do want to say and I do want to mean I want to be well. 
So search me and know me and see what's wrong in me because I know that you're a great physician, a wonderful healer, and you want to help me figure out how to cooperate with you to fix whatever it is. Now, I freely acknowledge, Father, that it's easy for me to sometimes even name your name to manipulate people with words. Please forgive me for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I do, oh, oh, do want to say something because I was just thinking about it as I was praying and I forgot about it as I was going through. I've been on quite a few um, Christian organization boards, including a church board for decades. That's nothing to my credit. I'm just trying to lay my experience down, okay? I mean, that just is to their credit because they put up with me. But once in a while, it seems quite apparent to me, and perhaps I've done it too, that someone says something like this, the Lord told me, or I'm pretty sure this is the Lord's will, when you're really detecting that they're trying to manipulate the rest of us and you know, leveraging, how do you argue against that, you know? We have to be so, so cautious about that sort of thing. So very careful. Anyway, thank you for your attention. I want to go to heaven when I die. No, I want to be a student. I want to be an apprentice. I want to sign up with, you know, Jesus, the Ben Carson of how to live life, you know, or, the, or whatever. I could pick names, but uh, I won't pick names. Uh, in terms of this experts in various fields, yes, I want to sign up with Jesus because he knows that it won't always be simple, but I'm going to gradually grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of apprenticing with Jesus. Oh, my goodness. There's nobody else anywhere that knows anything about how to flourish as a human being like he does. And what you're trying to do is just reinstate us, restore us, rehydrate us to the person you had in mind in the beginning. Please help us believe, really believe, that Jesus is the one who knows how to help us with this and then just commit to following him. Thank you for the fact that you are with us in this. We are not doing this on our own. Uh, we couldn't take the first step without you. But you've promised to be here. Your grace is here. Your grace, your energy, your activity is sufficient. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.